Well, Joe, it is a pleasure to have you here on the podcast today. It, you've been a friend of our family. You've been a part of our church. You've spoken where it was on staff for many years. And now we're here sitting down. It's, it's kind of surreal. Yes, it is. It's so good to see you, Logan. Thanks from, for having me. From babysitting me as a baby yes. <laughs> to having this conversation today. It's been a long time. It really has. It but really has. It's good to be here. A, a few things have happened in your <laughs> life since few. then. Yeah. Um, you, we, we've chatted. And again, you've been around. You've been in our life. There's there's probably two dozen topics that we could discuss that would be worthwhile on the podcast today that I think people would get a lot out of from forgiveness, reconciliation to so many stories of your family. And you recently just uh, published a book and it's it's kind of a true crime story of your life and a biography-esque and there's so many different stories from the the cover of it is your father-in-law and the the it was it the night before your wedding or the night of your wedding that he was shot yeah it was well it was the morning after so we got okay. married on a saturday night october 26 1996 um my father-in-law officiated the wedding along with your father pastor rob ketterly they like co-officiated and uh the next morning we received a phone call that my father-in-law had been shot early that morning and so that that was how our marriage started. <laughs> Day one. And that's that is chapter one of the book. And then it just goes off from there. Like that barely cracked the top five of crazy things that have happened. I to know us, to tell you a little bit about that. And so yeah, it's been quite the journey. You spoke at River Valley last year and it was so well received. And obviously that's part of the ministry that you do. You're go on speak and um again the that's just one of the chapters. Like knowing your story, like I, I wish we had six hours to just dive through the whole thing, um, but maybe their six hours can be reading the book, right? Right. Um, but one of the topics that we had discussed was your. You have a, a story, really, that of, of adoption is a key part of your family, right? And you've adopted multiple children, and amazing testimony of that. In your third adoption, uh, there was some. Things that you that were unexpected yeah. that led to an uncovering of some past spiritual kind of unsurfacing of things and led you down understanding the spiritual realm and maybe a way that you hadn't before or it wasn't as personal to you. And you'd been a pastor and you dealt with these things. And so I don't want to put words in your mouth, but can you maybe, you know, for people who clicked on this or they see the title of this this conversation, can you maybe take us to that? Again, this is several chapters into the book. There's so many other things we could discuss. But for the sake of this conversation today, there's a lot of... There's a lot of questions around demonic possession and can believers be possessed by a demon if they've accepted Jesus into their life, if they're filled with the Holy Spirit, is that possible? So many things that we can discuss today that I hope we get to, but talk about your family and how this was made personal for you. Yeah, so um, adoption has been a huge part of our family. We went through three miscarriages and then we're led to adopt, and so we adopted our our first um, child, our baby girl, Jojo, who's now 20, which is hard to believe. And then right after that, a year later, we adopted our son, Joey Jr., who's now 19. And then right after that, we found out we were pregnant. And our, our third child, who's our biological t- child, Jada, who is now 18. Um, so we had those three. It was like having triplets where our family's thriving, we're growing, um, we're in ministry. But then it was several years later when those three were um, quite a bit older that we really felt a call to adopt again. And it was, and all of this is detailed in the book. But it was really miraculous, and it was just like a divine direction for us to adopt from Haiti. And it was a friend of ours who we knew from ministry who contacted us on Facebook, said, I'm working at an orphanage right now. And she didn't know that we were looking at adopting. Um, she actually, my daughter Jada, was praying for twin baby boys for mm. us to adopt. Wow. And so this friend of ours out of nowhere contacts us and says, there's these twin baby boys at this orphanage in Haiti that I'm working at. And for some reason, every time I hold them, I feel like they're supposed to be yours, like the Andersons. Mm. And so I'm like, okay, what? How, yeah. You, you knew that? You That's do? as clear as it gets. Like right there, it's a done deal. So we started the process and they were born in 2010, right after the devastating earthquake in Haiti. So uh, a third world country that was already very under-resourced and just in, in havoc um, was even worse. And uh, so these these twin baby boys were born. The The story we had was that the mother, um, you know, there's lots of trauma with the birth and everything that right after the birth, she, you know, in their language said she went crazy, was throwing rocks at them, saying she was going to kill the boys. She ran off. 
the dad, the babies were going to starve to death. And even the grandmother tried to feed them like herself, like to, to breastfeed them. And obviously that didn't work. So he took a, a truck ride to the orphanage and said, they're going to die if, you know, if I don't give them up. So that was the start of their lives. We went through the process and it was very long because of the red tape and even things after the earthquake. It took extremely long. It took um, almost three years before we were able to get them, which wow. was extremely painful. And especially those first three years. How are, long did it take with, with Jojo and Joey Jr.? Well, that was the thing is that with Jojo, we set a record be, for interstate um, adoptions. That was um, less than six weeks from when, oh, when wow. we went to an orientation to when we picked her up. And then with Joey, we broke our own record where that took only three weeks. It so, was just crazy. So we're thinking yeah. like, we've got yeah. the, the, the golden ticket. This is going to happen super fast. And then it took you know almost three years. And so we brought them home. We knew there would be some issues because they've been in an orphanage. In fact, you know, they're with about 30 or 40 other kids. They don't even know that they're brothers because why would they? They right. have no concept of family or siblings. So we could have really picked any two kids to say that that, that was a sibling group. So they come home. They're um, fraternal twins. They're not identical. Very different personalities. And um, the first six months that we had them home, and this was in, uh, we brought them home August of 2013. And we actually were at general counsel in Orlando, flew down to Haiti to get them, brought them back to Orlando. That was just the way the timing worked. And uh, we get them home, and the first six months were like a honeymoon period. They they were very well behaved, very disciplined from being in an orphanage. We're like, man, I wish our other kids were this well behaved. But then at that six-month point, we named them Jimmy and Johnny. So like James and John, Sons of Thunder. And it was a dream of mine to have twin boys, you know, just for them wrestling and playing sports and just all the fun and excitement that went along with that. So it was like a huge answer to prayer and such a blast. But at that six-month point, Jen, um, you know, she's homeschooling all five kids um, she started telling me things that were, were going on, particularly with Jimmy. And I'm thinking, you know, okay, you're just overwhelmed. You're stressed out. It's five right. kids. We've added a lot to the family. But she's like, no, there's something wrong. And over months, this is building. I'm like, what's going on? Is my wife cracking up? Or what? I mean, I'm really thinking that because I'm not seeing it. Jimmy had a very uh, gregarious, charismatic personality. He was like fun. He was into sports. I could take him anywhere. He, he was the life of the party. He was like a little politician. He'd <laughs> walk up and down the sideline of a football game and like go up to adults and like, Hey, what's your name? He'd look him in the eye and shake their hands. And they'd this kid's going to be president of the United States. And he's <laughs> very gifted. And, um, as those months went by leading up to kind of the one year anniversary um, we were, she was really adamant that something was wrong. She's like, no, something's going dark with him. Mm. And like, he, he will like go like dark in the eyes and he'll get mad and he'll get angry. And, you know, every night we're, we're reading the Bible, we're praying. So I'm like, what are you talking about? That, that can't be the case. Um, she's even referring to like something demonic going on in him. And I'm like, there's no way it's impossible. You're like, I'm a pastor. Right. I'm a pastor. We're Christian. Like we have Christian drywall. We're home. (laughs) We pray here. We we go to church every week. They've been, yeah, they've been dedicated. Um, And so it's like, how can this be? He can quote scripture, like as good as any little kid could possibly. And um, I go away for a missions trip. I go to Cambodia, which is a really long travel period to get there. And the first night that I was gone, um, after that, I get an email as soon as I was able to get to the hotel and it's my wife, and Jen sends me this long email saying that the first night that I was gone, they woke up the next morning, and she started to go through the house and find TVs scratched up, computers broken. Almost every electrical cord in our house was cut. About 20 pairs of shoes were cut up with scissors. Um, ammunition was pulled out of our basement like workshop. Uh, my older son's drum set was just shredded to pieces. Uh, a circular saw blade was taken out and like cut up our team. I mean, thousands of dollars worth of damage. Uh, my older son, Joey, who was, a he, he was probably like 10 or 11 at the time. He had a chunk of hair cut out of his, his head. Mm-hmm. All of the kids like track ribbons were cut up. And as Jen and the other kids are finding all this damage and like they're crying and figuring like what happened, Jimmy just started laughing. And like had this maniacal evil laugh and like saying, I did it. You guys were all asleep. And this is really out of character for him or and any how old kid. was he at the time? Uh, he was three years old at the time. Wow. And so the amount of damage that he did was just not possible for a three-year-old. Right, right. Nor was it something, it, I mean, 
Jimmy and Johnny were so well behaved that they would sit at their door in the morning waiting for us to give them permission to leave their room. Like, even if he had just left his right. room to get a drink of water, it would have been way out of character. So mm-hmm. the fact that he did all that in the middle of the night, and I even tried to reenact this later, like how it's really hard to cut up a pair of leather shoes. Right. And this is like a little kid doing that. And the fact that no one woke up, which was just the grace of God. So Jen sends me this email. I'm getting it when I'm in Cambodia, like, what in the world is going on? This is crazy. Um, Jen's mom was coming in from Michigan to stay with her to help with the kids. And she's been a nurse her whole life and was like, this is really bad. You need to like get him some help. So they took him to the pediatrician. The pediatrician said, this is dangerous, like cutting someone's hair when they're asleep. So they admitted him to Children's Hospital in St. Paul. Well, I fly back, it's like two days to get back. I go to the hospital to see him right away. And I almost got arrested actually, because when I went there, they had a long line. They want to check in and give you the badge and the sticker. And I was trying to cut to the front of the line. And the guy's like, you're going to have to wait. And I just went back and I just darted for a door. And they called like a code red or purple or whatever was on me. And the security came to the room. I'm like, listen, my son is like admitted to the hospital and nurse had to vouch for me. But I'm, I'm holding him thinking, what's, what's wrong with him? What's going on? And I'm heartbroken for him, for my family. And also just realizing something is, I'm feeling in my gut and even my spirit, like something's really wrong, but I didn't believe it. It took a lot of work um, to get him additional help from Children's Hospital. Normally, they'll only take uh, kids into a psychiatric wing when they're six years old. But I called the Mayo Clinic. And I'm like really tenacious when it comes to like my family and kids. I'm like, you got to get him. He's smart. He's not your typical three-year-old. And they made an exception. They said, okay, we can take him to the, the Mayo Clinic psychiatric ward for, um, for kids. And they made a big exception. So they took him by ambulance from St. Paul all the way down to Rochester um, I go down there, I follow him, and we just made the decision, I'm going to stay at a hotel near the hospital, and Jen's going to be with the kids just so I could go visit him every mm-hmm. day. So he's there for a week and a half. They diagnosed him with reactive attachment disorder, which the psychological diagnosis of that is um, the difference between attachment and bonding you know, bonding is very transactional. So a kid in an orphanage will get really good at that. Oh, there's a, a white face. I'm going to smile and put on their sunglasses. They'll give me candy or take a picture. That's bonding. It's very surfacy. Attachment is like that deep love with a child for a parent. Right. Um, it's actually why America doesn't do orphanages anymore. Because orphanages are like renowned for creating bonding because you have different workers mm. taking care of you. It's better to have foster care where there is attachment, where it's like the roots of a plant can grow deep, even though it's painful when they get pulled out to go to a new home, the heart can still go there. Sure. So they, uh, a kid with RAD, reactive attachment disorder, um, the, and you can like Google this, this, it sounds very spiritual, but this is just, would be the psychological definition. The signs of it are fascination with fire, with blood, gore, (laughs) sharp objects, death, like all, like the devil's to-do list. Right. And, um, the, the Mayo Clinic said, um, they said, we're diagnosing him with this, and there's one place that I would refer you to to go for counseling. And it's in the Twin Cities. He said, you're very fortunate because it's a world-renowned place. People come from all over the country, and they specialize in this. So I called to make an appointment there, and I'm describing what he had done in our house. And uh, it's a husband and wife team that run the clinic, and they have a lot of employees. And he, I could just tell in his voice where he was, like, alarmed. And he said, I'm going to have you meet with my wife. They're both psychologists. And um, I found out later that they're Christians. It's not a Christian clinic, right. but they're strong believers. So we, um, we go to meet with her, and she does all this testing, fine motor skills, gross motor skills, intelligence, all this. It's like a long day thing. And um, she meets with just Jen and I privately and said, he's off the charts with intelligence and all this. Like normally when there's a psychological strong psychological issue, there will be a deficiency in right. some other area. Yeah, and their social skills and things like that, Correct. which is obviously abnormal because he had such high social skills. Correct. You would think this kid's just the charmer of the century. And um, she said, what he did in your house is not possible for a three-year-old. And she said, I know you're a pastor. I know you're an evangelical pastor, and this is going to be hard for you to hear, but your son needs an exorcism. Mm. And I just like was like, what? I mean, I'm not not even like, I'm not, I I was just like shook my head. I'm like, what are you talking about? And I'm still 
spinning from coming back from Cambodia and being at the Mayo Clinic. And I, I just like retrace my steps. I'm like, I'm in Cambodia. My son does all this. I come back. We go to Children's Hospital. I take him to the Mayo Clinic, which is like the second best psychiatric place in the nation. They say the one place to go to is you. And you're telling me he needs an exorcism. And she's like, I know that's hard to hear. And she began to say that they had done a lot of work in Costa Rica and the Caribbean and dealing with different orphanages. And she goes, I don't know why this is the case, but kids with reactive attachment disorder, a lot of times become more aware of their abandonment. And when they have a higher IQ, they will, that hole will be filled um, by a demonic force. And she said, I don't know why this is, but I can almost guarantee you that he was visited by an imaginary friend in the orphanage that was a dark figure with red eyes. Mm. that befriended him. And I'm like, are you like, so what, what's your theology at this point? I mean, like exorcisms, I mean, in, in our denomination, right. That's not, that's not a, a common practice, right. It's, I would say most people are not, they're not well-versed in this. Probably people listening, maybe they've seen it on TV. Maybe they've heard about it in maybe a, a horror story, but that's not really a, a recommendation that people just immediately go, oh, maybe your child needs that. So you're probably shocked at this point. Yeah, and I, I'm, a, I'm a very skeptical person by nature. Like if j- just being raised in the church, um, didn't see a lot of, you know, the extracurricular type things right, and the right. supernatural um, where it was, it was a real balanced approach to things like, well, you know, serve Jesus and you don't, we don't need to do all the hoopla with all right. this and follow him. Obviously an, an awareness that that can happen. And I would say uh, kind of a curiosity that I had, I was never into horror movies or anything, but I'd always be like, how does that work? Like, right. What if I, if a minister, if I did have to like deal with someone that was full blown manifesting, I never had, had to deal with that. And really none of my friends in ministry had either. And so it was like, I, I, I was curious about it. Um, it was something I would have liked to learn more about, but I, I didn't have much experience with it. Mm-hmm. In fact, I was more of the type as a pastor, if like someone at the church comes to me and says, you know, I had a dream last night that a, an eagle flew into my clothesline. And that means the president is good, you know, and I'd be yeah. like, okay, you know that, yeah. I don't know. Let's, let's pray about yeah. this. Cuckoo. Let's not jump. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was more of that guy. And so as I'm hearing this and at, at the same time, I'm like feeling it almost like as an attack on me, like how could my son be possessed? Right. Like what, what are you saying about me and my parenting as a pastor? And that can't take place in my home. And I would say the, the, the rudimentary feeling that I had with spiritual warfare was you just say, well, be gone in Jesus name. And then it can't be there. You know, like that's mm-hmm. it. Yeah, it's said yeah. and it's done. Um, and I found out quickly that's not the case. And so after she said that, and about the red eyes, we go and get him out of the waiting room, and we get in the car. And I'm, I'm like really good with parenting to my kids and not leading them into if I want to ask them questions to not lead them to an answer. And so Jen and I are in the front seat of our minivan. He's in the back seat, and I say, Hey, Jimmy, I want to ask you a question. Um, let's talk about the friends we have. And let me just take a step back. When she did say that about the the imaginary friend at the orphanage, um, it did kind of click something in me because he was the only chubby kid in the orphanage. We had to visit there a couple of times. And I was amazed. Like, I'm like, this guy's like the alpha dog. Like he is running this place. Sure. And he would, he would like, I watched him like sneak under a fence and go into the room where they had Pedialyte and come out with a bottle, bottle of Pedialyte. He'd go up to the cooks and they'd hand him like a chicken wing. He, he knew how to work the system right. and get extra food from people. And so I'm like, okay, it was like he had a sixth sense. Yeah, right. And so there was something going on. So as we're sitting in the van and I'm like, let's talk about our friends. And uh, I'm listing off friends I have, list off friends that he has. I said, do you have any friends that I don't know about? I go, it's okay. And he's like, yeah. And I go, well, what, let's, let's hear what they look like does your friend have light skin like dad? He's like, no. I go, what does he look like? He's like, he's dark. I'm like, okay. And I go, I bet he's got blue eyes like I do. He's like, no. Does he have green eyes like mommy? No. Does he have brown eyes like you, Jimmy? He's like, no. And I'm like, well, what color eyes does he have? And he goes, red eyes. And I'm like. This is in the car. Leaving. This is in the car. Like yeah. We're in the parking lot. And I'm like, I don't know. Like I freaked out. I mean, I'm just like what in the world? It was like another confirmation. And so that, that really started the whole process of, um, of us like, okay, believing this and letting it sink in. And 
that it was that was on a Monday, and that evening started the district's prayer and fasting retreat. Good timing. It was really good timing. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not going to miss this opportunity. So I get out and I stay in the parking lot. I call Clarence St. John, the district superintendent of our denomination. And I'm like, okay, you're not going to believe this, but this was just what I found out. And he knew a little bit that I came back from a missions right, trip. Right. And I'm like, okay, there's a prayer and fasting retreat with ministers. I'm not going to miss this opportunity. And I, I want to bring both boys up because who knows? They're twins, yeah. you know, but something's going on. He's like, bring them both up. And so we go home and just prepare for me to take Jimmy and Johnny you know, the three-year-olds taking them to a retreat where it's, it's all like ministers. And um, while I'm driving up there with them and I'm like, Hey, we're going to go to this camp and I'm driving in our suburban. Jen's going to have a bunch of women come over to our house and pray. Cause at this point we feel the spiritual warfare, right. like it's on and driving to Alexandria and it's a couple hours. And as I'm on the road, um, the sun is going down. And this was like a scene from a movie. Because Johnny, he had this issue for a number of years coming out of the orphanage where he would, it was a self-soothing technique where he'd rock back and forth when he got nervous. And he would do that every night to go to bed and he would actually like wear down the hair on the back of his head. So we'd always try and say, don't do that. But it was also an indication of when he felt anxiety. And I'm driving along and the sun starts to go on and I just get like the hair on my arm stand up in the back of my neck. And I'm like, I look and Johnny's just rocking back and forth like crazy. And I just felt this evil presence. And I, I look up in the rearview mirror and Jimmy is in the seat behind me. And it's like his face was distorted. His eyes had gone black and he's just glaring at the back of my head. And it, it, it's so hard to explain. It's one of those things that you have to be there. Where when you say eyes went black, what do you mean by that? It would be like brown eyes, but it was like they go dark. Like we mm. would refer to him as like going dark. Like mm. it just even the skin tone would kind of get a little ashy, would almost, and the muscles in the face, it was, you could see it, you could feel it. It's almost like, I mean, a manifestation of possession. Correct. 100%. And you, you, you could see it and like, that's different. Like right. something's different in his face, in his eyes, he's not there. And I quickly like turned around and he went right back to smiling, like being Jimmy. And then I'd go back and look in the rearview mirror and it'd be back to that glare at the back of my neck. So I'm freaking, I'm driving. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. And I, and Johnny's rocking back and forth, like nervous. So I start playing worship music and I'm playing it on my phone and I'm like holding it back there. So he has to, and, and he's starting to ask like, where are we going? And he's getting really agitated. Why are we going to, why are we going to camp? Who's going to be there? And it was like, the demon in him or around him is on to what's going on. Right. And I'm like, oh, we're just going to go see some friends, you know? And I'm expecting, I'm feeling so anxious now that I'm like, a deer is going to jump through the windshield. I'm, the odds of us getting there, I'm thinking like are one in a hundred. I felt that way. Jen calls me and she's like, Joe, I don't know what just happened, but um, my mom was the first to show up. And she's like, the power in the front of our house just went out. Mm -hmm. And it's not a fuse and we can't figure it out, but it's like our front porches and it's just dark. Like no one, no one really, I have to stand outside and let him know. And she's like, I just feel like the spiritual opposition right now. It's so like, well, mm -hmm. just keep praying. I'm telling yeah. her. So I'm playing worship music and I'm holding the phone back and I'm playing um, uh, Hillsong United, Jesus Blood, mm -hmm. where just like over and over again, says, right. Jesus Blood never fails me. And I'm holding that back and I'm like, sing it with me. And he was going, Jesus Blood always fails. And I'm like, no, his blood never fails me. It was wackadoodle. I mean, it was crazy. And so I am praying the spirit. I'm praying. Never had an experience like this. And so, uh, on that, yeah, your son's three, right? And mm -hmm. so any parent, if your three year old says, "I'm gonna beat you up," you know, or "I'm gonna, I'm gonna tackle you," mm -hmm. you as a dad, no, I can overpower this three year old. Mm -hmm. Was there any bit of you that almost? was up against this spiritual opposition that felt in some ways powerless against whatever this power was. Obviously, you're a believer, you love the Lord, but I can imagine that maybe you're feeling like, should I be afraid of my three-year-old right now that like he could hurt me? Which again, seems crazy for a three-year-old, but did, it, did did your safety come to mind? Aside yeah. From like, <laughs> yeah, I was I mean, terrified. you're driving the car. I was terrified, yeah. I mean, it, it especially, and that was... Over the times, like one of the things that, that I noticed 
um, as a difference, you know, over the next couple of years that we went through this is that was when he was manifesting and he would like come after me or come towards us and be aggressive, um, he would stare just dead eyes, eye contact. And it was like someone who was, you know, six foot five, 250 pounds who just got out of prison, who didn't care, staring you in the eyes, just no fear. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I know enough about kids that when a kid is having a temper tantrum, they won't look you in the eye. And when sure. they're mad, they'll kind of like stomp around and like look and, right. and do all that. And so that was such a huge difference. And that was what was so freaky is that just that initial. Mm -hmm. and, and the way I would describe it is when those outbursts would happen, it was always like an initial shock. Like you'd spiritually feel it like, right, whoa, right. in your flesh. Like your flesh would be like react to it because usually it'd be mm -hmm. like yelling or something that was way louder than the decibels that right, were coming right. out. It was like a spiritual shock. But you felt in your flesh, but which was quickly followed um, later by like a spiritual confidence mm -hmm. and just like righteous indignation and, and calling it down. But this being my first experience in the car going to camp, it was, it was terrifying. It was terrifying. And as soon as we pulled onto the campground... It was like bringing a car to a mechanic that's making a noise and then just stop making the noise. Like he just went back to being Jimmy. Mm -hmm. And um, we did hours of prayer that night. And um, one, one side story that, that I, I think is important to share that's in the book is your dad and I were at odds with each other for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. We hadn't talked. Yeah, I remember that. And I go to the prayer and fasting retreat, you know, to bring my boys there. And, you know, I, I joke about in the book, I said, the only thing that's more uh, combustive than two MMA fighters running into each other before a fight would be two pastors who are at odds <laughs> running into each other at a prayer event. You right, know? Right. And um, so I'm not even thinking about this, but actually earlier when we first left the counselor, uh, the counselor's place, when you encounter evil, much like encountering God, it makes you question everything in your life that's not right. right. Like when you get really close to God and you're just like, God, I want, to be, I want to be pure. I want to be holy as you are holy. When you really encounter that there's evil, you have that same reaction, like, God, whatever's wrong in my life. And when we left the counselor that day, both Jen and I looked at each other and like, we got to make things right with, with Ketterlein. It's like, this mm. is just wrong. Like, it's, it's so stupid. Like, and so that was like on my to-do list. I get to Lake Geneva for the prayer and fasting retreat. And I put the boys on the back pew, had a friend watch them. I walk into the restroom, I come out, and I knew your dad's schedule for just working with him for years. Yeah. And he normally could never go to the prayer and fasting retreat. Mm -hmm. But he felt like God had told him to go this particular year. And so he's up there. I come out of the bathroom. He's walking into the bathroom. We run into each other, like literally face to face, and just look at each other. And I go, I start crying immediately. I go, you're not going to believe this but this is why I'm up here right now. And I got to tell you, I am so sorry. And I want your forgiveness. I forgive you. Everything is just so stupid. And I just, I, I love you. I need you in my life. You're my pastor. You're my friend. I need you. And he, to his credit, with me dumping all that on him, it was, it was a God moment. Mm -hmm. And it was such a spiritual, holy moment that we both just started bawling. And like, God just broke everything there. We hugged, we prayed, and it was like, okay, we'll meet again to talk. And so that was such a cool redeeming point, mm -hmm. you know, which I don't want all these spooky stories for it to get lost that God always right. redeems. He always takes what was meant for evil and turns and uses it for good. Right. So that was what changed everything in our relationship. It's awesome. And so we go, I meet with the, um, the people that had been pulled aside to pray who had some experience. We pray for hours and it was like, he wouldn't, Jimmy wouldn't, it was very clear right away that Johnny was like your typical three-year-old, like, hey, guys. You know, yeah. And they're like, okay, he can leave the room. There's, But Jimmy just sat there and could answer every question and quote scripture. And we were praying, but yet everyone felt like something's not right. Right. But it wasn't manifesting. Hours go by, finally ends. I'm frustrated leaving because it's like I've seen him manifest and he didn't do it there. And I... I drove home all night. Right. So then people, you're wondering, are people thinking, I'm crazy? You know, right. My wife's crazy. Yeah. Right. Am I making it up? Am I exaggerating? But yet at the same time, they wouldn't have prayed for like three hours. Yeah, and they, they not felt it. it. Yeah. was like, something's not right. Like his, he's smiling and saying this, but there's something there. Um, 
So we get home and it's early in the morning. I haven't slept all night. I'm exhausted. And um, we're also thinking like, okay, we got to keep him in a room by himself. He can't be with Johnny because right. he'll, he'll kill him. Like who knows? And so I said, until we get an alarm on his door, um, I'll just sleep on the bed with him. And so we had his room stripped down so there wasn't anything dangerous in there. I lay down on a mattress on the floor with him. And I'm, I'm falling asleep and I'm thinking, my, my son's demon-possessed. Like he's got demons in him and around him. Like, how can this be? And I'm laying next to him right now. Like this little boy that I love that we gave everything to adopt and bring him home and God direct. Like, how can this be? And I was just like, I was so sad. And I fell asleep and I had one of the most vivid dreams I've ever had in my life. And in this dream, I was in a waiting room and all of a sudden this woman walks in, this like seductive woman walks in and sits down right next to me. And I'm like, whoa, like, hey. Pastor and, Joe, nice to meet yeah, you. Yeah, <laughs> it was, but it was just, it was very weird and like, okay. And in my dream, I'm like, hey, no, thank you. Whoa. And then she just looks at me and like, oh, that's how it's going to be. And then disappears. Okay. And then all of a sudden I'm, I'm aware of like being really freaked out and scared. And so I go to leave the room. And I'm in this hallway and I look down. This is still in your dream. It's still my dream. Yeah. Just fair. Yep. Yep. I'm in, I'm dreaming. I'm in the hallway in the dream and I look down and it's that woman. And now she turns and is running at me and her face is like a witch, like a, Mm. like a demon. She's chasing me. And as I'm running away from her, I'm like feeling my heart beat slower and slower, feeling it beat, hearing it beat in my ears. Like I'm about to pass out and I'm gasping for breath in my dream. Well, I wake up and as I wake up, I feel my heart beating in my ears, like going boom, 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 boom. And I feel like I'm going to pass out when I wake up. As I wake up, Jimmy is face down on the bed, sound asleep, but his hand is backhanding me, pinching off my carotid artery, like, like a monkey grip, just squeezing me. And I'm, I, I had to peel his hand off. It was like it was independently working. His body's completely relaxed to sleep. I peel off like, just to get the relief. And I'm like, what in the world? is going on right yeah. now. This is insane. And that was that was the beginning of that journey. Right. I mean there's obviously a lot of stories and and I want to make sure we have time to get to to some of what you've learned throughout this mm-hmm. process. Um and so again, I, I I guess I don't know where the next direction would be, but as you as you've started to uncover what you've learned in this process, there's a lot of people who are saying, well, we need to pray for ourselves to to not have demons like that, right? Mm-hmm. That there's actually there's a growing movement of like pray for your demons, get rid of your demons, all of that stuff. Obviously, kind of balancing your story in that, and obviously sharing some updates on that. But what what would you say to all those listening? Because again, those stories are are crazy, and mm-hmm. for some they're exciting, like oh, it's the spiritual realm. For others, they're nerve they make them nervous. But for you today, what what is your what are some of the things you've learned about this that we should be aware of today that, again, we're not typically aware of in the United States? It's not, it's not a common problem, whereas maybe in Haiti or in the Caribbean or in India or other parts of this, it's more common. And of course, interweave some of the story in there as well. Yeah. And so um, I don't want to be remiss to kind of complete yeah, the story yeah. with Jimmy because we went through, and in my book, I detail unnumbered, like two chapters worth of stories that are very crazy, sensational, not for just that purpose, but to, to really truthfully say what this was like, um, that demons are real and that evil is real and that um, we need to be aware of that, even if you, you're not going to maybe encounter something that's so rare, like what we went through. But it came down to, I mean, we did every deliverance ministry you could possibly think of. We, we were even referred to the one Catholic priest that was a charismatic Catholic priest, the only one that was authorized to do the rite of exorcism in the area. Super secretive to go there. And here I am, and somebody's got evangelical, <laughs> evangelical uh, pastor. I'm like, not in a million years did I think I would be doing this. But you're desperate. And it's right. also, I, it was like kind of an honor that we got referred. Like our psychologist said, I don't even have his number. I know someone who knows someone. I have to write a letter because they won't just take anyone. Like a psychologist has to like vouch, like this is spiritual and we go there, and um, there were six men, the priest, his assistant, who was the most sweet, tuned-in, Holy Spirit woman I've ever met in my life, who would write things down that God was sharing with her. Super humble, super sweet. Um, the psychologist was there, and a nurse. 
So like this whole team of people with a padded um, therapy table that Jimmy would climb up on and lay down. They'd put a sheet over him to like hold him down. The priest would, did his thing the first time we we're there. And again, I'm like, what am I doing? This is insane. And I couldn't like give the names or the location or anything. He didn't manifest. But then afterwards, they're like, hey, dad, can we talk to you? It was in a parsonage. Can we talk to you in the kitchen? So it was the priest and his assistant. And I'm thinking they're going to tell me it's nothing. Right. I was like thinking for sure. We get back there and uh, the lady puts her hand on my shoulder. She goes, I'm so sorry. And the priest goes, it's really bad. It's like uh, uh, an infestation. It's one of the strongest that we've ever seen. I'm like, how did you? But he wasn't doing anything. He, he was go- just sitting still. He, there's different things, but they could see it in his eyes. And she goes, I had this vision of all these like witches faces coming at me. And so they're experiencing it. They're experiencing and they're seeing it and they're, they have knowledge. And obviously they have no benefit to waste their time. I wasn't paying them money. It's a whole team of people. By this point, you're like, I don't think you're crazy because I've experienced the No, but I was, it was confirming to me, like they're seeing it like, yeah. And they also said the weaker demons will show themselves with outbursts. Uh, the stronger the demon it is, it will like lay low when it's confronted. And so obviously that's off experience, right? I think mm-hmm. the the skeptic will say, okay, well, where's the basis for some of these things? Mm-hmm. Right. Like obviously your story and I know you, I I trust sure. you know, I've I've I was a, maybe not a part of it, but I remember this time hearing about the stories, meeting and experiencing all these things. But for the skeptic out there that's going What's some of your basis? Like, what what does the Word of God say about this? Well, yeah, I think that the one of the things that is kind of like a hallmark of what I say to people in ministry is trust the devil to be the devil. Like, the devil exists and demons are real, and so we are seeing we're we're beginning to see in America what other countries have seen. Um, there, you don't have to look very far in our culture to see uh, demons at work. Now, it doesn't always look like a third world country where someone's like raving mad because it doesn't have to. But you can see, you know, I don't need to list it off, but you can just think of what we've seen in the last five years in our culture that would have been unthinkable in the past that is now just common knowledge. It's just common to our culture. Um, And you say, well, who's behind that? What's behind that? Even people who are atheists, okay, or agnostic will say like, and it's almost like there's demons at work. I mean, really, like <laughs> yeah, you, yeah. Th- it's pretty clear to see. So, the, and and strangely, since we had this experience with our son, just even in the last five years, there's been such a uh, a move or an openness to deliverance, demonic activity. Um, I think like in 2023, there are, there there are five movies about demonic possession. Hmm. Six, if you want to count the Barbie movie, <laughs> but um, but but five. There's you're five. ready for that one. Yeah, there, yeah, I was. I was. That was chambered. There are five um, movies on demonic possession and exorcisms. You know, and that's like never happened before. And I don't think that's just um, uh, art trying to form culture. I think that's a reflection of what's going on in culture. There was a study that um, with 18 to 29 year olds that about two thirds of them have left the church or left their religion they were raised in within five years. And that same group, so it was like two-thirds left the church, but almost an identical percentage that they've left the church, but they would believe in demonic possession. Mm. That there's like an an openness and a knowledge and an experience with like, no, there's evil and there's things that have happened and I've seen some stuff and I've experienced some stuff. Right. So I think that there's that... Um, that that is just happening in our culture. And if you read the Bible, there's obviously demonic activity all throughout the Gospels. That was very common. We maybe haven't seen that. I hadn't. You know, my experience prior to this with my son, I wasn't like the demon guy in ministry, like, it's behind a bush right there. And I haven't since then. My eyes have been open to it, but that hasn't been like a hallmark of my ministry even moving forward. So... um, I certainly am more sensitive to it, and I see it in more things. Um, but it's very, very real. Mm-hmm. It's very, very real in our world. When you think about the obvious manifestation that was in his life of you know the initial moment of the cutting up of things and things mm-hmm. like that, I think you you alluded to it a little bit. But the other parts of the spiritual realm that maybe are not as dramatic but are still prevalent that I think 
sometimes you think of the crazy grandma who over-spiritualizes everything that's, you know, praying over the dirt devil vacuum, trying to cast out the mm -hmm. demon from that. And then other times I think you can think of these manifestations and everyone would say, I live somewhere in between there, right? But for the average person or church leader listening or even pastor that hasn't dealt with this, what is... What would you say as you say, I'm not the, the demon guy that's coming to your church to be the exorcist, but I'm also not the person that's going to just wipe this away. It is now a part of your story. It's in your book. What's kind of your message to people as maybe they're, maybe they may experience more of this in the future mm -hmm. that they should be prepared for? Again, maybe not the same type of manifestations that you saw, but as a pastor, as somebody who is... Again, we're on the front lines of, of trying to fight against darkness. Mm -hmm. What are some of your thoughts as you've talked to pastors and church leaders over the last several years? Yeah, I think, first of all, personally, there's never been a, a, a time where it's more important that we make ourselves holy. You know, again, getting back to the trust the devil to be the devil, I think that um, toying around with sin, with darkness, with intoxicants, pornography, offense, leaving those things in our lives will lead to darkness. It doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be demonic possession, but it is opening the door. I mean, one of the things I learned is de demons will only go where they have jurisdiction and have rights. And when we are toying with darkness or just kind of winking at it or saying it's not a big deal, I'm a, I'm a modern Christian and I can handle that, it, it opens the door. It opens the door to your life. It opens the door to your family. Absolutely. And so we should be awake. You know, it says in Ephesians to like, wake up, like right. don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the spirit and do not give heed to the darkness. And, and that's real. If there's ever been a time, it's real for us right now. And so I think personally, that's super important. That'd be the message I would share with anyone is uh, maybe someone who's listening needs to hear that, that they need to close those doors mm -hmm. that they've, they've cracked open. Um, in the church world, to um, my advice would be, and this was one of the things we learned because with Jimmy, we had prayer meeting after prayer meeting, and it was like wild goose chases many times. One of the things I learned was that the biggest tool the enemy will use through demonic activity for a minister or a ministry will be to steal your time. Mm. Okay? Where there's chaos and drama, you can know that there's the devil behind it. <laughs> and you can go through a two-hour meeting and feel like you were just spinning your wheels. And what really, to bring it full circle, what I learned with Jimmy, because we had to relinquish our parental rights to him. Hardest thing I've ever done in my life. I mean, nothing even comes close. It's my whole identity as his dad, as my son. I love him. Um, as, as, a, as a pastor who supports adoption, the, the shame, the guilt, the not being able to explain it. It was like a death, but not having a funeral or family or friends around to be able to explain it. We couldn't be public about this. This is the first time I've really talked publicly about this in my book and in this interview. It was devastating. And when it came to that point, because we were told by social workers, authorities, that it was like he was going to kill someone in our family. And I tried everything. All those d different deliverance, 13 months in a row, we went to the Catholic exorcist. Wow. We went to every like missionary that was possibly available. Even some of it was really kooky stuff where I would call it like Christian witchcraft. And I came to a point where I was like, okay, God, what am I missing? If this comes down to some kind of assault covenant and I need to bury a verse in my backyard, <laughs> if that's what it is, then I, where is that in the Bible? Like, right, right. where's the simplicity of the gospel? And it came full circle the day before we were going to give up our rights to him. And he didn't know this. I was sitting with him and we just had this like father and son conversation because he would be great with me um, when we were just one-on-one. -on -one. And I said, hey, Jimmy, um, are you still talking to the, the bad spirits? Because that's what we call them. And I said, you're not getting in trouble. I just want to hear. And he said, yeah. And I said, you know that they're bad for you. He goes, I know. I go, you know that Jesus has the best for you. He's like, I know. And I said, you can, you can make a decision right now for Jesus and those bad spirits have to go. He's like, I know. I go, all you gotta do is let me know and we can pray but you've got to want that. He sat there. I said, do you want that? And he goes, no. And 
as painful as it was to hear that from a six-year-old at the time, it made perfect sense that much like a, a parent of an adult child who's not serving the Lord, who's praying like crazy for him, it still comes down to that individual's choice. And we weren't going to see f- freedom in his life unless he wanted that. We could maybe see freedom at a moment, but it's going to come right back. And it was like talking to like a drug addict saying, you know, you're going to lose your life. You know all this. Don't you want to be free? And they just go, no. And he made that decision then. And that was the only, because up, up until that point, I was seriously um, considering leaving the ministry hmm. because I, you know, the saying, are you smoking what you're selling? I'm like, how can I stand and talk about victory and hope? And I'm not even experiencing this in my own son's life. Right. And it came back full circle, the, the simplicity of the gospel that a child can understand and accept or reject mm-hmm. is what makes Jesus so beautiful, is that it doesn't have to be this complicated thing. You don't have to do the song and dance and, and get into the Christian witchcraft or, or it's, it's receiving Jesus, it's serving him. It's forsaking all others and following him. And so that's the message I try to share to other pastors. Don't overcomplicate it. Focus on Jesus. And much like Jesus, when he talked to the lame man at the pool of Bethesda, and he said, do you want to be well? And you think like, why would he ask that? I would challenge anyone in ministry, if you have someone that you've been meeting with, that you feel like you're spinning your wheels, ask them if they want to get well and tell them what that means. Because maybe even... um, not intentionally, but they could be being used by the devil to soak up your time and your energy and to get you off track. And you're, cause I've had that with people I've counseled and I've asked them, do you want to get well? This is what, and the, I've had people look me in the face since then and say, no. And I'm like, why don't I ask this all the time? Like people will be pretty honest. And I think that's one of the, the key ways that we have spiritual warfare as ministers is that the drama, the chaos, the, the, the time suck of just things that we're not getting where and that could be spent on people who are desiring help. Mm-hmm. Ask people if they want to get well. Ask people if they want to follow Jesus and lead them to that. Don't get caught up in the the trying to cast something out of someone who doesn't right. want that. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one of the biggest keys that I've learned. That's so good. It's thank you for being vulnerable in yeah. your story, and obviously I know you share it in your book, but sharing it you know, articulating it out loud and sharing it on video, I think is a, is another level of, you know, vulnerability. And so I appreciate that. One last thing as we wrap up here for maybe those who are, have people in their church who are almost seeking this out. You mentioned the Christian witchcraft kind of Mm -hmm. as a joke on one hand, but on the other hand, there's some realities too. There's some spiritualization that is kind of, I would say piggybacking off of this new appreciation or a fascination of the spiritual realm. As you talk about, a lot of people are rejecting God, but they're open to the spiritual realm. There's almost this openness of Christians that say, well, let's see what's kind of under that rock or let's see what's under that. What would be your kind of last word to people who, maybe they're not the people who are listening to this podcast, but there's people in their churches that are kind of trying to turn over these stones and almost seek out this spiritual manifestation that they maybe think is a way for them to get closer to God because they haven't felt the the power and they haven't felt the hair stand up on the back of their neck. Does that make sense? Right. And I think that, you know, one of the things that's so attractive about it is like, oh, I have this problem or I have this struggle in my life. I can just pray the demon away and then I'm completely uh, delivered and right. healed. Depression and, or anxiety. Right. And there, there is, I mean, they're not mutually exclusive. Like there, there is something to that for sure. But um, if you're not going to be filled up with the power of God, if you're going to be filled up with the Holy Spirit, filled up with the word, that's going to come right back. You know, whatever it is, because you're just an empty vessel then. And I think that one of the biggest things is to if if somebody is is going down that road of like deliverance and um and there's any sense of pride coming from that person, if they're like their Twitter handle is like Demon Slayer 2000, just run the other way. You know, if if someone's making that their identity, that 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 they have the authority on that, because I, this is so common that someone who's really into deliverance, a lot of times they, they're not under the authority of a pastor. Right. They bounce from church to church. Their marriage is a little sketchy. They're, they're, they feel, they kind of like present themselves like they've got the special secret key. Right. And that's, that's a deception. That's wrong. It's pride. It's arrogance. It's exactly what a demon would want you 
to do, right. where there's humility, there's reverence saying that Jesus is the one that's going to give us freedom. Jesus is the one that gives us deliverance. The more humble someone is, the more credibility I would give them. When they're, And there should never be a rush or a panic to do these things. We can be calm. We don't let the demons make an outburst. Or it's, it's focusing on the individual and them making a decision to follow Jesus and then helping them with that, praying for them, fasting. Those are all the keys. Yeah. And anything that's dramatic with it, I, I would just run the other way. Yeah. Um, and to make sure that you're focusing on Jesus, never lose sight of that because the devil always wants us to get us off track a little bit. If we can yeah. focus on anything else other than Jesus, then we're going the way of the enemy. Right. And so to c- keep coming back to Jesus and serving him, following the word and trusting with all of our hearts. Right. It's the perfect end. It's all about Jesus. It is. And I, I love that you've shared this. And your book, The Tension of Redemption, uh, I encourage people to get it. It's, again, so much. This this it wasn't intended to be a, a plug for the book. It was just really just yeah. your story is so impactful. I believe that the memoir is going to impact so many people. And as you speak at churches, again, not not even about this topic, but just about redemption. And I encourage people to to check out your sermon that you shared with River Valley. And uh, maybe you can go around, share this at other churches and inspire them with your story from, again, your accident that we didn't even touch on right. at all, your miracle man story. I mean, too much. We'll have to have you back again to share other stories, but it's been a privilege. Thank you from from babysitting me to on the podcast, we, we made it through. You survived. So I survived. Yeah. yeah. And I, I get to share one last yeah. thing that uh, Galatians 3.13 has just been such a key verse for me and my family through all this. And is Christ Jesus redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. Mm. That Jesus provided the, the victory. And that verse upsets demons. It upsets all of hell because that summarizes what their enemy is trying to do to us and that Jesus became a curse so that we could be set free from the curse and have victory in him. Amen. Thanks so much, Joe. Amen.